Thank you, Chad. Good evening. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. And if you've been here with us for a while, that may seem foreign because for the last year, I've been saying, turn with me to the book of Acts. And if you're just joining us this evening for the first time, thank you for being here. We had been previously going through the book of Acts over the last year, and we're going to take a break from that or for the next three weeks to focus in on a series, really a mission vision series for our church, Living Hope, Brian, called Church DNA. What is DNA? DNA, it stands, it, DNA is a molecule that supplies the genetic instructions that tells living creatures how to live, how to develop, and how to reproduce. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to explore together through God's word, the DNA, not just really of Living Hope Brian, but of all churches. Because I want you to know, friends, that the vision and mission that we have as a church is not something that man has concocted or planned together. Each and every week as we talk about our vision statement, unifying, growing, and serving others for the purpose of proclaiming Christ These are all things that God has done and does for us that we now walk in. The reason that we can talk about biblical unity between one another is because of the unity that exists in our relationship with God. The only reason that there's unity within the church because we have unity with the Father. We'll also see next week, we'll talk about the growing church. It is God that is the giver of growth. And lastly, we'll look at what it means to be a serving church. And we have no greater model for us in the pages of Scripture than Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And so you'll see that our vision is built on, again, who God is and who God has called us to be. He has called the church to be unified. He has called the church to be growing in Christ-likeness. And he has called the church to serve others, to, to live for the sake of others, for the glory of God. And so each week, we'll look at a different element of our vision statement, unifying, growing, and serving others for the purpose of proclaiming Christ. So let's get started tonight by looking at biblical unity. Without doubt, we live in a world that is full of division and rivalry at just about every level of society. We we see this with our politics, Democrats, Republicans. We see this with our smartphones, Androids, iPhones, right? We, We see this with our pets, cats, and dogs. We see these with our burger joints, especially if you're from Texas, it's Whataburger or in and out right? I see that discussion happen frequently. I don't think there's any comparison between the two. One is totally better than the other, and I'll tell you which one off the stage. (laughs) We we see it in our movie universes. There's Marvel. There's DC. We see it especially in sports, being that this is time of the year, next weekend, A&M will play, and and we see it between A&M and Texas. But Aggies, we would say, our rivalry is now Alabama. Just ask Jimbo and Saban about all they went through. You see this division on every level of society. And as we look at our scripture this evening, 
And then Paul, the author of this book, written to the Ephesian church, he's writing to a people who are predominantly Gentile in audience. And he's addressing a very bitter rivalry that exists between the Jew and the Gentile. And as we examine this rivalry quickly, you'll see there's different things that have them at odds with one another. And I just want to point them out very briefly. One, there is a religious component to their division. The Gentiles did not know the God of Israel. Two, there was a cultural component to their division. Jews were people of tradition and of customs that made you unique from all the surrounding nations. We learned about this, did we not, in great detail last year when we went through the, or the year before when we went through the book of Leviticus, a set-apart people, and we see this about the Jews. The Gentiles, not so much when it came to customs or traditions, but there was also a racial component to this as well. The Jews were a people proud of their bloodline proud of their roots, proud of their family tree that sprouted from the likes of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet what we'll learn tonight from Paul's instructions is that the gospel of Jesus Christ levels the playing field. The gospel reminds us that we all have a problem and there's only one solution to the problem that exists within the human soul. That being our Savior, Jesus Christ. And and so as we look at this, we see the church too in our day. This is relevant for us because the church, we can be very divided as well. We are divided by culture, by ethnicities, by our preferences, by socioeconomics, where we live, how the church responds to matters of justice or interpretations of doctrine, and the list could go on and on and on and on. But no matter where we land on any one of these subjects, it it can be easy for us, no matter what camp you're in, to, to find yourself drifting towards this spiritual elitism that we are better than. And so we must address that spirit that runs the risk of damaging the witness and the testimony of the church. So this is why Paul is addressing and speaking because he knows the volatility that exists between the Jew and the Gentile. If he doesn't speak the truth into these relationships, there's going to be friction. There's going to be tension. There's going to be division. And God's people, we're not supposed to be divided. We're supposed to be united. And what brings us together is Christ. And this is what we'll see play out in this text this evening. God has a purpose for his church to be a witness, a bright, shining witness for the world. Earlier this week, somebody introduced me to the aspen tree. I didn't know what an aspen tree was, but there's these things called aspen trees. And uh, I think we have a picture of some that we can put up on the screen, and they're pretty beautiful. Now, this is in Utah. Utah is the home of the greatest collection of aspen trees, I believe, in North America. It's 106 acres. Now, aspen trees, they're very unique because while it may look like they're individual trees, the thing about aspen trees is they're all rooted together by one root system, by one life force. 
And one thing that's even more unique about these guys is that when their colors change in the fall, that they change in sync. Like there's no rogue aspen tree. If there's a rogue aspen tree, it's going to die. It means it's been cut off from the life force. These, these aspen trees, they change color almost in unison together and they create this beautiful picture for us to behold. Friends, I believe that God would desires for his church to be much like the aspen tree. To, to, to come together, to band together, that we are synced together by one life force that is Jesus Christ. And while we have differences and different backgrounds and different stories, we all band together, come together to be a bright, shining light for the world to see. And this is what Paul is after. This is his heart for the church as he is speaking to the church at Ephesus. A church is diverse, that's in danger of dividing. And so here he reminds them of their story. And it's good for us as God's people to never get over our story, to remember where we have come from. And so what we'll see here tonight in chapter two of Ephesians, verses 11 through 22, it's much like our own personal testimony. You, you see, we all have a before Christ. We all have that encounter when we met Christ and what God has done through Christ. But then after Christ, he has called us and he has set us apart. And this is what we'll see in our text this evening. Paul takes the Ephesian church down memory lane. He reminds them of who they once were. And then he reminds them again of what God has done. And lastly, we'll see here this evening, he'll remind them what God has called them to be. The same is true of you and me. We all have a before. We all have, if you're in Christ, when you encountered him, when you met him, and we all have a calling. We've all been called to go, to tell, to make much of the good news of Jesus. And so let's read this text uh, this evening before we break it down and I point out several observations to you. Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, for he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in him one new man in the place of two, so making peace. and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and with the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the big idea that I want us all to keep in mind tonight is this, is that the unified church is the fruit of lives rooted in Christ. Everything that we talk about this evening has to do with the activity and the work of Jesus. We are who we are as Christians because of Christ, not by what we do, but by who we are, who God's word says that we are, and by what God has done. And so first, as he's speaking to the Ephesians and for us tonight, let's first look in verses 11 through 12 at our alienation. What Paul does here is he reminds the Gentiles, again, of people who they once were. He reminds them of their previous condition. Paul here, again, is revisiting their prior life to encourage them. He's not trying to discourage them or have them revisit or live in the past. Paul directs them to the past for a purpose to remind them of what God has done. God will never drum up the past to condemn you or to shun you or to shame you. That is the enemy. That is what he does. Paul here, he uses the past to bring forth and make beautiful God's grace and his work presently in your life. He's speaking to Christians. Remember, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's good news. And so what does he do? He reminds them of their past. One, he first, he tells them, hey, at one time, Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision. This is how Jews refer to the Gentiles as the uncircumcised party. Now, circumcision had a very particular meaning to the Jews. It was a covenant sign between Jewish people and God that they belonged to God. So not being circumcised meant that you did not belong. And so what Paul brings up, because there was a period in your life, guys, when you did not belong. And the same is true of you and me. If if you don't have Christ now, you don't belong to him. You're not in his family And this is what Paul is reminding them of. Second, he he shares with them, not only did you not belong, but you were outsiders. You were a people outside the blessing of God. He goes, remember that you, in verse 12, were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise. He's reminding them here of this Abrahamic covenant that God had made and God choosing Abraham and making certain promises with Abraham that we see in Genesis 12, that again we see in Genesis 15. He was saying, because you were not from Abraham, you were not a recipient of these promises, of these blessings. So he tells them, you were, did you not belong You were outsiders outside the blessing of God. And friends, if you don't have Christ in your life, you are outside the blessing of God. 
You, you need God's grace. You need his love. You need his mercy. Those are all blessings that God has dispensed upon us for those who put their faith and trust in Christ. And Paul's reminding him, hey, there was a time in your life when you did not belong, where you were on the outside looking in, when you did not have the blessing of God. Then he gets very plain with them after that, the end of verse 12, that over the outside, the blessing. But notice what here it says after he says the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. So they're, they don't belong. They're outside the blessing. And then he tells them they have no hope and they're godless. Friends, that, that again describes all of us before Christ. Before Christ, we did not belong but to anything but our flesh. Our flesh was our master and we did what we desired. And our flesh will always take us places that will not be beneficial, that will not be good for us. That was our master and sin is a cruel and ruthless master. But this was where we once were, we did not belong to God. We belong to our sin. We belong to our flesh. Or as earlier in this very chapter, in Ephesians chapter two, it says we are dead in our, in our sins and our trespasses. Outside the blessing, no hope, godless. It's pretty plain and simple. This was the picture of the Gentiles before the gospel before Christ. And he reminds them of this, not to humiliate them, but to help them be humble, right? He wanted them to remember who they once were. And I think it's a good thing for us to remember who we once were. And again, we, we do that for the purposes of remembering what we have received, what we have gained because we have gained much. And we'll see this here in verses 13 through 18. He, he reminds them of their alienation. But secondly, he reminds them of their reconciliation. And we see that powerful word there because verses 11 and 12 are pretty bleak. But then we see this wonderful word there, but. It's contrasting what we're getting ready to see here. What we saw first, this is not good, but what we're getting ready to read is so good. He says, but now, and that's significant. That means, now means now. That means present reality. So friends, if you're here in Christ and you're a Christian, this is your present reality. There's, there's nothing left for you to do other than to trust in what Christ has done. It says, but now in Christ, those are powerful words in and of itself. What does those words mean in Christ? I want to read to you something I read earlier this week that says it so much better than I ever could. Uh, from Pastor Steve Lawson. He said this regarding this question. What does it mean to be in Christ? 
To be in Christ, first of all, means that we have a saving relationship with Christ and are brought into union and communion with him in such a way that we are in Christ. What is true of Christ becomes true of us. His grace, his resources become our experience and possession. When you read Ephesians 1 and 2, the phrase in him or in Christ is repeated over and over. It says we are chosen in Christ. We were predestined in Christ. And it goes all the way down to the Holy Spirit that we are sealed in the spirit of Christ. That the life of Christ is now in us by virtue of our being in Christ and Christ in us. It's a double union, if you will. My entire life is now lived for Christ, but the life that I live is lived by virtue of being in Christ. His grace, his sufficiency, his riches of mercy are now available to me. Man, those words are so powerful, so rich. That's what it means to be in Christ. And so after Paul paints this very bleak picture, very dark picture of no hope, of being godless. He says, but now, present reality, in Christ Jesus, this is who you now are. Once a people far off had been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says, you went from not belonging to belonging. You went from being an outsider, outside the blessing, to being an insider, to being a recipient of the blessing, as we see here. What, what it says, for he himself is abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. We went from being hopeless and godless to being a people of hope. Because God is with us. And his spirit is in us. God is the author of this. This is our blessing that we have received. This is the reconciliation that we now walk in and have realized, it's actualized in our life because of who Christ is. Notice again, all this activity is, if you go back and you read these verses, there's 10 things that I noticed that God is the author of all. And it's worth pointing this out because sometimes we can put the cart before the horse and we can think the work that we do, while important, because James says that it is, that our work somehow accredits to us goodwill with God. The work that we do after salvation is a giant thank you to him. It's because we're grateful that God would save somebody who, who was in such a condition as Ephesians 2 is laid out. So there's 10 things that I notice here in these verses that God has done. One is he's brought us near by the blood of Christ. We have peace because he being Christ made us and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. God did the heavy lifting. He did the work that we could not do. He abolished the law. Jesus is the only life on earth that passed the test of the law. 
As soon as we get up in the morning, we will fail the test, probably in some way, shape, or form. Jesus never broke the law. And it makes him, it's what made him the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sin of mankind. And it's now through him, the law of Christ is filled. The law is not done away with. The law is still necessary. The law shows us that we're broken, shows us that we need to be saved, shows us that we need to be rescued. But the law in of itself in keeping the law is not sufficient for salvation. It shows that we need salvation. And this is why Christ came. Christ came and kept the law perfectly. And now we walk and live in the law of Christ, which is to love God wholly and to love others as ourselves. Four, he created the new man. God did this. God gave us peace. Five, six, he reconciled. Seven, he killed hostility. Eight, he came. He did it. He showed up first. He made the first move. Aren't you glad that he did? Nine, he preached life. And 10, he gives us access to the Father. These are all things that Paul highlights that God has done. Nowhere in here do you see, hey, Gentile, you had a part to play in this. Friends, the only thing we bring to the salvation equation is our sin. And God is the one that has solved that problem and has made us right, that's reconciled us to God if we have called upon the name of Jesus and be saved. It's not our works. It's not our good desires. Those things do not save, don't make us right. Only Christ does. And so Paul here, he first reminds them who they were. This is your, you were aliens, you were apart, you were separated, you didn't belong, you were outside the blessing. But because of Christ, he's now brought us in and now we are participants. Now we belong now we are one with God. And this is where it, it takes a little bit of a turn. He, he, he reminds them, hey, it's just not you and God. When you come into a relationship with God, we talk about our, our personal time with God and we all have that and that's good. But God has a lot more people in the family than just you. And he reminds the Gentiles of this here in our identification in verses 19 through 20. Two, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household. And as we, let me go ahead and just read it again. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets in Christ Jesus, him being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord, in him whom you also built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And when you look at these verses, Paul, he connects God's reconciling work that we see in verses 13 through 18 to who he's made the people to be. And notice there's a lot of plural here, that this togetherness theme 
really runs through these verses. We see there is togetherness. We, we see in these verses that are highlighted by several of these words, fellow citizens joined together and built together. Friends, this reminds us, as I've said, it's just not you and God. We, we have a vertical relationship with God. Each and every one of us does as a Christian. But Paul, what he's getting ready to flesh out here for us is there's also a horizontal relationship that exists between you and every other Christian. Especially as he's speaking to the Gentiles in their context, this means not only Gentiles, but Jews alike. And we see this first in this word fellow citizen. That word fellow citizen, it means possessing the same citizenship with others, a fellow citizen. Friend, there are no second-class citizens in God's family. It matters not your ethnicity. It matters not what's in your bank account. It matters not what your age is. It matters not what's in your past. Friends, we all have a past. And by the blood of Christ, he has dealt with us. He has made us right. And we are no longer bound to the past, though it may show up in our lives, depending on the choices that we made, but that's still good. God's good grace. It reminds us of the grace that he's given to us and we have in Christ. But there's no second-class citizens. We all have a seat at the table. And speaking of that, we see this word, Household that shows up in verses 19 through 22. God here is describing the corporate identity of his people. You are a family, Gentile and Jew. You are together, your household. Paul states it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He has adopted us making us a family. Now, I've told the story again, but it's worth repeating. God has blessed our family with three children, and we've adopted. 12, 10, and 3. And that is not a subject that we shy away from. It's something, in fact, that we want our children to be proud of. And so at a very early age, on an understandable level, we share with them what it means to be adopted. When a child is placed for adoption, uh, the birth mother, they make a selfless sacrifice. Because it's it's unnatural for a mom to, to want to give up a child. But in the case when situations like this have to happen, the reason that the birth mom does this is because of love. In our case, when Heidi and I chose to adopt, we chose to do it. We we chose our children. Why? Because we loved them. So the whole adoption experience, the whole story from beginning to end is rotten love. This is what Paul is landing the plane for them. He's telling them, he says, God has adopted you into the family. 
really what he could say plainly, you're in the family because he loves you, because he chose you. And he has demonstrated through that in his choosing, in his sacrifice and sending his son. Both Jew and Gentile are recipients of the same father's love. The father doesn't play favorites. They're all his children. He loves them all the same. They're a family. And this is what he means when he says the household. He's their fellow citizens, they're a family. And he says they're God's temple. God's temple. God's people, it says here, are built on the apostle and the prophets, teaching that is the word of God in which Christ is the cornerstone. And so, so what is a cornerstone? In, in ancient times, builders, they used cornerstones in their construction projects. I am no builder. You should know that about me. If you've been at any time around me, I'm more of a destroyer. Uh, the cornerstone in ancient times, it, it was a principal stone that was usually placed at the corner of the ephedus or structure to guide the workers in their course. The cornerstone was usually one of the largest, most solid, most carefully constructed of any in the edifice. The Bible describes Jesus as our cornerstone and that his church would be built upon that. And once the cornerstone is set, it becomes the basis for determining every measurement in the remaining construction of the building. Everything was aligned by the cornerstone. As the cornerstone, the building of the church, Jesus is our standard for measurement and alignment. So how we function, how we move, how we go as a church is all dependent and aligned with who Christ is and what Christ has done. And Paul says to God's people, I have joined you together, verse 21, and built together. And when you combine that together with what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he calls us living stones. God's people are living stones. And he takes each of us living stones and builds upon each one of us into something beautiful, something the world should see, something the world should be confounded by, right? Because we, we, can, we can say this with honesty, like many of us in this room, we have so many differences about many things. But the only reason we gather together in our homes, together, across the table from one another is because of Jesus Christ, right? Because we have preferences all over the map and that's not a bad thing. But God links people together, not by preferences, not by taste, not by how we raise children, not by our ages or our stages in life. All of them are vital and necessary to the building of the church. God takes different shape and size stones brings them together to build something beautiful called the church. This is the church. And the people in that day, they would have understood a, two, a thing or two about building and structures and cornerstones being the Ephesus was, was home to one of the wonders of the world, the great temple of Artemis. But friends, God's temple is better 
It's not constructed by brick or mortar. It's constructed by people. A people who are different, but one in Christ. And our remaining together is a witness and testimony of God's power, of his love, of his wisdom, of his mercy and his grace for the world to see and know. And so as we think about the unity that we have that began with Christ, what do we have to take away from this as it pertains to biblical unity? A couple of things that I want for you to keep in mind as we get ready to walk out of here this evening. One, biblical unity is rooted in our common story. Regardless, again, of who you are, your background, ethnicity, gender, bank statement, education, home, past, present, we all have a common story. Apart from Christ, we all have that. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were hopeless. We were godless. We, were, we did not belong. We were outside the blessing, very much like the Gentiles were that Paul was speaking to. We have the same problem, that being our sin, and there's only one solution for it, and that's trusting in Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. May we remember that. There's no room in God's church for a better than spirit. We all come to, come to God the same way. We all need the same Savior. And when we remember that, it's a humbling thing. Two, biblical unity, it frees us from a competitive spirit. When we remember, man, that we all come to God the same way, that we're all on the same team, it it frees us from this competitive spirit. And this is very important for us in our context because we live in the Bible Belt and we live in a very blessed community. And why do I say that? Because we live in a community saturated with many good churches. So many good churches, so many good pastors. Again, the, the church, if you're just joining us here this evening, the church during the month of July gave me four weeks of rest to go on a sabbatical. And I spent time meeting with different pastors in this community, attending other churches. And I was reminded of how many awesome churches there are. I already knew that, but to be able to sit where you're sitting at and listen and just soak in and be a part of the fellowship of other churches was such a blessing. And just be reminded that God We are all a part of the same family. Yes, we may have different church names and God has given every church a specific vision for people to reach, but we're all doing it for the same reason, for the same name. We're on the same team. And again, I'm so grateful because we get to be reminded of gospel partnership and collaboration every week. Why do I say that? Because this place that we meet in, we know that this is not, uh, this is a building that we lease, that we rent, that we share with Grace Bible, Midtown Church. And we're so grateful for that partnership and how they're generous with us and how we work together. And we look forward in this coming year to figure out other ways we can do things together because God's people are better when we work together. Three, I think for me, this is the one that really stuck with me all week long is when we understand how biblical unity happens. 
you understand that, that God is the creator of it. That God is the one that brings us into right relationship with him. Biblical unity helps us cherish the church. When you think about biblical unity and how God created it and how he started it, he is the one, is the maker and the creator of the church. When you think about in each one of these seats here this evening, there's a story of God's grace if you're in Christ. A very unique story, a special story. There's nothing more remarkable than something dead coming to life. It doesn't get much more amazing than that. And that's what we once were apart from Christ. We were dead in our sins, but we're being made alive in Christ. And that's a remarkable story that we need to not take for granted. And we can do that, right? If you've been in a body of believers, a family of faith for a long time, we can take those wonderful, miraculous stories of salvation for granted. We can wander and we can forget from where God has brought us from. And when this happens, we can find ourselves doing things that are detrimental to biblical unity. And so I just want to mention three things that are detrimental to biblical unity. This is not saying we're doing these things, but I think this helps us preserve the unity that God has created. Because church, he wants us to preserve, to fight for the biblical unity that he has created in Christ. Why? Because we're to be his witnesses. And the first is this, is complaining. I really don't need to say too much about complaining. The scripture says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, becomes a favorite verse in our household, especially for our children, do all things without complaining or disputing. And I don't think I really need to say too much more than that. You guys can fill in the blank. You know what complaining is. It's not being content. It's forgetting, in, in the case of God's people, what he has done. Let's be honest here, and you can respond. This, isn't have, this is not a rhetorical question. Do God's people really have anything to complain about? Okay, thank you. We don't. Now, will we complain? Yes. Traffic, it's hot. Where's the rain? Our air conditioning bill's too high. We'll, we'll, We'll find everything to complain about. But friend, it ought not be so for God's people but it can be detrimental to the church. Why? Because complaining is like our natural bent as people. And so complaining can be contagious. And if you complain, it's like a domino effect. It'll cause somebody else, they'll suddenly remember, oh yeah, yeah, I don't like that either. And they'll complain and then somebody else will complain and it's a mess. God's people, we have really nothing to complain about. Two, this really goes in line with complaining, having a critical experience, critical spirit, I mean. In my experience, a critical spirit is connected to a complaining spirit. It's when we have allowed the complaining thought to taint everything we see and we do. Now, there is room for criticism, constructive criticism, done God's way that we see laid out for us in places like Matthew 18, done with the spirit that we see in Genesis Uh, Galatians 6, in love and gentleness. But a complaining spirit and a critical spirit can be very detrimental to the church. Often when we're critical of something, whatever it may be, we are are pretending like we have all the facts and we we see and assess the situation 
as is. Three, and this I believe is probably one that we all must guard our hearts with, just in life in general. And this speaks again to contentment, this comparison. Again, being that we live in a a church-saturated community, and praise God for that, because it's God's plan to reach the community with the church. And so we always need more churches. That we can confine ourselves, if we're not careful, looking and gazing and focusing upon the wrong thing. We can compare ourselves to this is our sister churches. We can be wishing, as we see, as we drive, you'll probably drive by three or four churches on the way home. But I wonder what they got. I wonder what they got going on. We can compare ourselves to the programs or to the people or to the buildings or to maybe their budgets and their finances. Who knows? Right? In the day of social media, you know, being a pastor in this town and friends with lots of pastors and lots of churches, like on Sundays, my social media pages are just littered with stuff that everything the churches are doing. So there's so many, there's a buffet of choices and everything going on. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves gazing at those things, maybe wishing we had those things. And none of those things are wrong, but we must be content with what God is doing in our fellowship, with our people. Because if we're not careful, we can begin as people to find our identity and what I call the three Bs. Buildings, butts, and budgets, right? We find our identity, right? Man, and what kind of structure that we have. Again, there's nothing wrong with a building. Praise God for this building. We have a plan one day in God's timing to have a, a structure, a building at 1812 Beeson Street. But listen, friends, 1812 Beeson Street, it better not be the goal of Living Hope Bryant. If that is the goal of Living Hope Bryant, we need to sell the property now or to give it to another church. That can't be the focus. That can't be the goal. That is way short-sighted. That is too temporal. Our identity is not found in how long we have to wait or when we get a building. Again, we've been learning through the book of Acts. Again, we think that building is wise and can be a strategic means to advance his kingdom. But friends, ultimately, it's not necessary to do God's work. Acts makes that plain to us. But what I mean by that, this people... Like, if we see, if we like a full room, we want a full room. Here's, here's the way I see it. You know, there, we have some people that are out that are sick. But when we see empty chairs, it ought to not discourage us. What it ought to be for me, this is what it's done for me, if I have time to think about this during the month of July and just reflect upon it. When we see empty seats, it should remind us of our calling as God's people. When we see empty seats, these are perhaps future people that God may bring here. But how does he bring people? Yes, he brings them by the spirit, but he brings them by spirit-led, yielded people that go and tell. Are we going and telling? Are we inviting? This is the call of the church to call people to Christ. We're not calling people to a building. We're not calling people to a strategy. We're not calling people to a vision, even to a mission, really. We're calling people to submit their lives and yield it to Christ. And so again, we're, we're here this evening 
Yes, we want more people in here. I want more people in here. I wish this room was full. Not to stroke my ego or to make us feel better. I want people to be here because I believe this church is faithful to telling people about Jesus. Like so many other churches are. But there are people out there that need Christ. This is why we invite people not to be entertained, but to hopefully encounter the resurrected Christ that's coming again one day. And the only way he's gonna receive us into heaven is if we have a relationship with him. That's not built on anything that we've done. And three, budgets. We're getting ready to pass our budget and God has been so good to us this year within our fellowship. And I think uh, our chairman of the finance at our leadership meeting a week and a half ago, he said, Living Hope, Brian, we've had our largest, you know, money, influx of money coming in this year in five years. And praise God for that. That we praise God every year when it's lean and when it's large. Because our identity is not any man-made structure. Our identity is not in the size of a crowd. Our identity is not in how much money we have in the bank. Our identity is in Christ. This is what Paul was calling the Gentiles to remember. Hey, you're getting off track. Remember those next to you and beside you. They're your brother and sister. Remember where I brought you from. Remember what I did. And remember who I've called you to be, a household of faith. A family, your fellow citizens, your God's temple. You are many worshipers everywhere you go. And friends, this is our all reality because of who Christ is. This is the unity that I'm speaking about. That we're, we're one in, with the Father because of a relationship with Christ. And because we're one with the Father, we are one with one another. And so may we walk that out. May we preserve what God has created for the sake of his name and for this community. Let's pray. God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this day. Thank you for attentive ears. God, you're so good, Lord, that you give us this space and this time to remember the work of your hand. And so may we this evening be recounting the blessings that are ours in Christ. Lord, once we did not belong, once we were outsiders, outside the blessing, once we were godless, once we were hopeless, but now we have hope. Now we have you Now we have the blessing. Now we belong because you are good and because Christ was faithful and he completed his mission. And when we trust in him, we're right with you. And so Lord, if there be someone here tonight without Christ, would you convince them? Would you show them clearly, Lord, what they need is you? Lord, that our good works, that they're not good enough. Lord, we need to trust in the good work of Christ. So Lord, thank you, Lord, for taking us a trip down memory lane to remember our former life, but help us to remember the life we're supposed to live now until you call us home. We have no idea how long that will be, but Lord, may we be found faithful to do the work you've called us to do as your people, to preserve the unity that you've created by being faithful witnesses of your gospel, by living it out, by loving one another, 
by seeing one another as family, despite our differences, our preferences, our stories, God. That's what's unique. Lord, we're not rooted in those things. We're rooted in you. Lord, may we be like those beautiful trees that we see out west, those aspen trees. May we be a bright witness for all to see. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you're here this evening and God is encouraging you or speaking to you, over to my left, to your right, we have a prayer room. If you have something or request of anything that you would like prayer for, we have people that are dedicated and are ready to encourage and pray with you. You can be as specific as you want to be, or you can just simply say, hey, I just need prayer. And the good thing about it is God already knows, and God can just prompt our our brothers and sisters committed to that ministry to pray for you. So I would just encourage you here this evening to respond as God speaks to you. If you're here without Christ or have questions what it means to follow Christ, uh, let's talk afterwards or talk with somebody that you came with. Uh, Please stand and respond as God speaks to you.